we're peeking behind the curtain, mm-hmm. you know. Um, we're finding out something we didn't know. And it's like, and that helps to sort of normalize all of us because mm-hmm. we all have a curtain to peek behind. Well, this interview is over. My mom and dad both came from um, relatively poor farming families. Mm-hmm. I guess my mom's people would have been, you know, okay. They had, they had a bunch of land going back to like the 1840s. My dad's people, though, he always made that classic joke of we were so poor during the Depression, we never noticed it, you know? <laughs> you know, 40 acres sitting crushed up against a swamp in Mississippi. No, my dad came back from World War II. And I, I always say these days, I think to deal with the you know PTSD of having been in the war, he became a workaholic. Mm-hmm. He started, you know, working at a furniture store um, as a salesman and, you know, eventually wound up with his own store. So, no, by the time we came along, we were... Everything was... Right. Yeah, we were good. But we always had that connection. You know, we would go up to my mom's people's farm like almost every weekend. My grandmother was the only one still alive at that point. So because we like physically were so connected right. to where my folks had come from, I never thought of us as being, you know, well off or whatever. The continuum right. was there. Did you like you visiting know? when you went to the farm and all that? <sighs> Depends on what age I was. When I was a little kid, it was, you know, paradise because we had free run, you right. know, wherever we went. Then of course, when I got into my teens, it was the worst thing ever. Um, I'd rather be home with my friends and instead my dad's. And, and this was another thing for me too, you know, during the week, the regular life and all this, but on the weekends we go up to the farm sure. and my dad would expect me to be on the tractor with him. Right. You know, right. See, I, I, the reason I ask that is because we would take visits to farms or Huber's or work out in a field and cut land, uh, not cut land, but cut stuff off of land or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, hated it (laughs) i was never into the outdoors Mm -hmm. this i'm going to tell you this story about the the worst camping and only camping trip of my life like i said there were all these inner city kids whatever urban kids whatever you want to call us and we'd never been to a forest or anything Mm -hmm. so I don't know if it's the YMCA or the the metro government or whatever it was at the time but they wanted to let the black kids go experience an outdoor camp. So it was free. And of course, you know, we were gone for a week. And so my cousins and, and kids in the neighborhood and all our parents were like, yes, take these children, take them, <laughs> take them with you. So we all get on this bus and we go to Camp Rough River. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was just, you know, we slept in tents and we were hiking and we made those, what, the devil's eye with, like, the two sticks, and you wrap the yarn <laughs> around, and you have this square thing that hangs on the refrigerator for about a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I was so miserable. Like, the kids were swimming in the river. Um, and so I got in the river, and I thought everybody was dog paddling. I almost drowned. <laughs> um, there was a storm, and we were in tents. I remember the tent. It was, like, this kind of aquamarine-colored tent with just poles. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it was storming and like everybody else was asleep. I'm like, how can you sleep when we're going to die? I don't understand how you sleep to the end of, and I'm praying all night. There was a, a camper and late at night, and I was deathly afraid of the dark as a kid. I really was. Now I love the dark. Now I love absolute pitch dark. But when I was a kid, I was like, I need a light on somewhere. Um, 
And so it was very dark out because it was nature. There were no streetlights. And so we had a campfire. And around the campfire, this counselor started telling this story about Scarborough, who lived. He used to live in a cabin, and his, his cabin caught fire. And now he's all scarred, and they call him Scarborough. And they say he still hunts these mountains. And he couldn't even get the sentence out before. I'm just like a mess, just wailing and just terrified. Of Scarborough, he's like, oh my God, what do we do? You know, and so he just like, it's all right, it's cool, it's just a story, dude, dude, it's good. Because they were like these '60s hippies, you know what I mean? They didn't know. They were like these hippies from the '60s and '70s, all long hair and blonde and tan, and they lay outside all day and they eat, you know, berries off of trees. And there's this kid who's just like, this guy, he's gonna kill us, he's gonna kill, you know. And so, you know, eventually, it just had to calm me down. It was awful. It was so bad. And then I did like day camps after that because again, free, send the kids. Mm -hmm. But this was like an overnight for a week camp. And I was just like, this is so horrible. See, I want to see, you should write your particular life's version of Meatballs. You know, the other side. Oh yeah. No, I love that movie. (laughs) But I'm just saying, I want to hear it. I want to hear that story. I know. Your perspective and like, you know, a bunch of a bunch of kids from the city. Oh, yeah. No, it was awful. It was uh, no. The, all they had was like this outdoor toilet. So mm-hmm. no one no one uh, went to the restroom for a week. So that was tricky. You know, they they just it was it was horrible. <laughs> it was just horrible. I want to um, back up to before you outed me as a as a well off kid. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, rich kid. Again, what were you? Again, I have trouble. We were not rich. Um, Says although, you. Although it's funny what you said before about your friend who turned out not to be able to read. Poor kid. Um, you know, it's one of those things of if, if you just have more than like the guy next to you, then suddenly you're the, the little rich kid. Right. Um, which always felt weird for me because though I was also, you know, the smart bookish kid who got beat up, got fat. So to me, it's like, I don't. I don't give a fuck what my dad does, man. You guys are on my ass all the time. Right. My life no, sucks. Yeah. There was no, for me, there was no haven. Yeah. Like, because like I would go out with, with those people and then like, I'm mean, even my cousins would make fun of me because their father, like I say, he was the grandpa who would like literally beat the kids mm-hmm. for minor infractions. You know, you broke that plate. Well, you, you will pay, you know, and he would just beat them, you know, and then he becomes super grandpa. Um, so they, I would go over there and they had to take their aggression out somewhere. So it was me yeah. because I wouldn't like they, they would fix cars. Like I had a cousin who could fix a car. He could take it apart and put it back together, mm-hmm. you know, and just having gone, well, this must go here, <laughs> you know, and just psh, yeah. new car. Um, so they made fun of me for being book smart because they really weren't mm-hmm. at home. I was like, I didn't fit there at all. I didn't fit in the neighborhood. So I had no haven. Like my, I guess, I guess my sister was my haven because she was really, not, she did up until eighteen, and then she's like, I gotta get out of this crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when she left, I mean, my heart like went, it just snapped because yeah. it's like, I miss you so much. And you were how old then? When she left home, I was seven because we we're eleven oh, years wow. apart. Okay. So okay. it was like really like, what? When's she coming back? When yeah. she's not coming back. Well, can I go where she is? Because I don't like this place. <laughs> um. But, uh, no, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, it didn't even occur to me to ask. So, but your dad wasn't around. No, my parents were divorced okay. when I was too young to even remember. I gotcha. mean, their marriage yeah. lasted about 45 minutes. 
Um, it wasn't good. They were, I mean, and again, it was that whole idea of rather than sit down and talk about it, they'd yell and fight. I mean, and they would fight. It wasn't like he hit her and she just, oh, stop hitting me. Like, it would be like crazy fighting from what I know. I mean, I don't remember. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I only saw him like, or even heard from him like five times. Like, I keep telling myself I'm going to write a play and call it four and every seven because I saw him when I was four, and then every seven years after that till he died. So I saw him wow. I saw him when I was four, and he brought me a blue jean jacket that didn't fit because he didn't know what size it was. And it was back when blue jean, everybody had a blue jean yeah, jacket. Yeah. And I wanted to keep it, and my mom said it doesn't fit, give it back. And then, when it, should we, what? I wanna see how long this is gonna last. Hmm. What is that, is that like a lawnmower? Or I think it's a lawnmower. Why do people cut the lawn at noon? I, I don't know. When he's gone. Um, I, I think he was, he was, he knew we were here. Um, we could pause. Okay, we'll go with that. So when I was four, um, my dad gave me a blue jean jacket, which didn't fit, which broke my heart because everybody had a blue jean jacket and my mother would let me keep it. I think partially because it didn't fit and partially because uh, she hated him. Um, and then when I was 11, my father, shot someone mm. and killed him. Ooh. But it was self-defense. The man stabbed him, so he pulled out his gun and shot him and killed mm. him. But he ended up in prison, and so he wrote me a letter from prison. Uh, when I was 18, this uh, he showed up to drive me to college in Knoxville, and he was drunk as humanly possible. Mm. Um, and then I, when I was 25, somebody said, you should go see your father. And then a lot of people said, you should go see your father because he was dying. Mm -hmm. um, he, had, he had all of it. He had congestive heart failure, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. He drank like a fish. Um, so I went to see him and we just kind of sat there. Yeah. And it wasn't like, um, he was like, I should have been there in your life and blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't like, where were you when I, you know, because I had grown up. I'd gotten used to being in a matriarchy because our family was mm -hmm. for the most mm -hmm. part a matriarchy. Um, and I just went, you know, I turned out all right. You know, I'm pretty happy in my life. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you don't feel well. It's good to see you, blah, blah, And then soon after that, he died. And I went to the funeral, and there were all of these people who looked exactly like me. It's a weird, <laughs> weird trait. Like, literally, people can stop me and go, are you related to so-and-so, McGill? Because you look just like I know. Mm -hmm. I know. Like, all the men look just alike. It's weird. Um, but that was it. Yeah. That was it. That was all of my contact with my father. Wow. And would you say you're going to call the play? Four and every seven. Four and every seven. Four and every seven. I can't say that there wasn't a consistency in your relationship. No, that was it. It's like, yeah. oh, well, time to go see Dad, I guess. <sighs> or get a letter or something. Have him show up drunk. I, I, would, I wish I had the interview skills to now at this moment veer this into a direction that would make you cry and really seal this, but I'm, I'm not there yet. So. Yeah, I, don't have, I, I understand. Yeah. Next time. Next time. I'll have you back. I'll give you a cheat sheet. Okay, this is the stuff I'm really emotional about. Just kind of sneak that in. Don't let me know. <laughs> so you're an actor. What about your dad? <gasps> Why? So I get a sense of the acting thing, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I see the, the roots, as they say, of your education mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. The comedy, did that start at, sort of as an outgrowth of the, uh, of the theater thing? Or was that well, like a complete comedy side Well, really was, I wanted to be in theater the whole time, but I didn't know how to get my foot in that door. And in addition to being teacher's pet and uh, class pariah, <laughs> I was also class clown. Hmm. And so I would do really goofy stuff to get kids to laugh, sure. even if it was at me. 
um, because it diffused, you know, like, oh, Keith is ridiculous. Why are we picking on him? He's ridiculous. But then I, I, I figured out, oh, if I make, say, for a long time it was other kids, and I felt really bad about that. And so then I started mm-hmm. making, like, teachers the target. Um, like, look at Miss So-and-so, she blah, blah, blah. Like, we had a teacher in third grade. Her name was Miss Baloo, and she slept. She would just sleep. Mm-hmm. Like, we're supposed to be working on a worksheet or something, and she's out, out like a light. And so I would make fun of her while she was asleep. Um, and then that just grew into um, people ask me, what, 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 how would you describe your comedy? I said, I'm the guy you want to sit next to at a boring meeting who will make fun of everybody. Good to know. And you will laugh like a lunatic, and I will sit there very innocently. <laughs> and so that's where the, 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 so the comic outgrowth came from. And mm-hmm. I, it just one day it was like, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try it on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and this must have been about 80, 83, something like that. Um, and uh, I wrote down some stuff that I thought was relatively funny. And... Um, are you comedy uh, uh, aspiring comedians out there? Don't do this. I did it for my friends. Like we were just sitting around. It's like, I think I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the, the comedy club and do some comedy. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we'll do it for us. I'm like, okay. And I did. They went, oh, okay. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, I'm not even funny. I just went, oh, but now I have to do it because I said I would do it. Now I have to do it. Um, and actually, I got, I, I got some laughs. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like pity laughs. It was actually, that's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, just like you do, I got right back on the horse six months later. Mm-hmm. I went, <laughs> no, because that's what you do it, it once. Some, and it then it's like, uh, you had to work it up again and do it again. And for a long time, I did it more and more and more and more and more and more. And, um, you know, I, would, I was getting pretty good laughs. I was finally figuring out how to sort of get a couple laughs or whatever. And um, I asked the woman, her name was, uh, is Julie Powers. And she would decide who got to MC shows, who got a guest spot on shows, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, how come, Julie, I get really good laughs. How come you never put me on stage? And she said, because I don't know your show. Because I was writing a new every time. three or four minutes every time. <laughs> and I said, you don't have to do that? She's like, no. You really should just work on getting a really tight X amount of minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 minutes, I guess, is what you needed to be an MC. Mm-hmm. I went, oh. And then pretty soon after that, once I realized that, because like, I, it's funny, I remember the very first jokes I did. And then there were months where I would just do jokes and get rid of them because I thought, yeah, I can't use that again. They've heard that. Everybody's heard that. Everybody's heard that. Um, I, I admire the, uh, the work ethic in that, though. You, well, I mean, there are still comics who do that. And I said, you don't have to write a new show yeah. every time. You know, I mean, you want to have new stuff, but you don't want to have all completely new stuff because people need something to hang on to. I right. call it the uh, Rolling Stones uh, theory of comedy. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to hear Satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to hear Ruby Tuesday right. Paint it black. Mm-hmm. But if Mick had some crazy thing, you know, when he was in, you know, France last year mm-hmm. and he's written it, you should bring that also. Yep. You know, or yep. you should do Paint it black, you know, as reggae or whatever. <laughs> I see a red door and I want... Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that, Mick. If you're listening, don't do that. I hear other comedians, you know, talking about the whole, you know, you've got to have that whatever, you know, tight five minutes or whatever. Right. And it makes sense that, like, especially if you're if you're out, you're a working comic, you know, every night you might right. be in a different place, would not make any sense whatsoever to have a different bunch right. of things. Right, of course. Then and now, did you find with audiences that 
they don't really care setting aside what the gatekeepers <laughs> want from you, but from the audience, like, did they, did they really care what you did as long as it made them laugh? Like, like, did you find yourself playing around with, cause I've, I've seen your set a few times and you're, you're not a joke teller per se. No, it's not like set up punch set up. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like, like Henny Youngman and the cat skills, you know what I mean? Right. Right. Um, but have you found over the years that as long as, long as you're bringing a laugh, Right. The audience will kind of go with you wherever you take. Yeah, that what I when I first started, it was, and most comedians start this way. They don't write about themselves. They write jokes about things that they've seen. It's right. like it's very outside myself. Right. I saw this thing, or I heard this story, right. or can you believe? That um, classic. Uh, what was it? The Seinfeld right. sort of stereotype. What's the Did you ever deal? What's the deal? Right. Yeah. Um, and he made that work. But what he the reason he made it work was because he told us something about him right, right. while he was saying, what is the thing with, that's crazy because, or I don't believe, you know, that's silly. But he would give his reaction right, to it as well. Right. Yeah. And so eventually you start writing about yourself. Hmm. Um, you know, I have a, you know, my mom is, my girlfriend is, my boyfriend is, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And once you tap into that, and then what you find is that me talking about myself is me talking about the audience mm -hmm. because there's somebody else out there who's like, yeah, mm -hmm. me too. Or I think that's ridiculous too. Tell me more about your point of view on that. And so then you do that. Or you say like, like one of the things I, um, I talk about in my show is that um, I went to engineering school, but I was a C average engineer. You can't be a C average bridge designer. Nobody wants a bridge that works 70% of the time. <laughs> And the reason I tell that is like to say, one, I have screwed up in my life. Mm -hmm. And I and it's what's great about comedy is that you get to say that yeah. right out loud. Yeah. Like in the in you know, it's like I've I've really made big mistakes. Let's enjoy them, shall we? <laughs> um and the other thing is other people can say, I have also made very large mistakes mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Like when I talk about owing student loans, it is amazing how many people who are in their fifth or sixth decade of life still have not paid off yeah. their student loan. Yeah. You know, because it's, you know, it's just, that's the human condition. And talking about you talks about other people, mm -hmm. you know, and allows them to go, me too. Like I, I, I invented a grandpa because I didn't know either any, I knew one grandmother. And so I didn't know any of the other grandparents, but I needed, at first I would say, like, you old guys, da-da-da-da-da. And people would be like, wait, what? what? <laughs> Excuse me? Too this, personal. This was about you. Right. Um, and so then I say, my grandfather, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then now it's become, I'm getting older, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm -hmm. Like my grandpa, da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm -hmm. You know, and so if I put it over there, they my can look at it over there. Right, because even the grandpa that you were about to f offend when you said old right. guys. Right. If you say my grandpa, he's like, oh, I remember my grandpa. Right, yeah. right. Or Yourself. somebody can go, honey, that's you. It's like, it is me. He's, <laughs> he's right. It's me. It's me. And yeah. I haven't yeah. I haven't accused anybody of being that, mm -hmm. even if they are that, because mm -hmm. that's not what they came to the show for. They didn't come to the show for me to go, you're old. This is what you do. It's like, Old people in general do this. Right. And then as I got older, I could say, I do this mm -hmm. because I'm old. But shouting, shouting at the audience is usually not an not effective to, comedy not strategy. Not to accuse them of yeah. being whatever it is you're talking about. Unless you take it all the way into like Don Rickles territory. Right. And where see, he singles and out individuals. Yeah, in I audience. know comedians who do that. And I just like, okay, that's what you do. But see, that to me takes me right back to 
my childhood when mm-hmm. I see a comic do that. Mm-hmm. That whole look at that shirt or look what you're wearing and why are you coming mm-hmm. here? Da, 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 da. And it's like, I didn't come in here for you to make fun of me. Mm-hmm. I came in here, mm-hmm. this is supposed to be a safe place for me to listen to you right, right. be a screw up. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to be a screw up. You know, you are inviting me in. Mm-hmm you know, to, to tell you some stories or right. what have you, you know, not to me. you should feel awful about this thing you're doing or not doing or should be doing. Why aren't you doing it? Yeah. And one interesting thing about somebody like Rickles, cause I, I, I agree in general, the, the idea of, you know, banking your whole approach on insulting people in the audience for a lot of people. That's, I, I can't do that. I don't, I don't want to be singled out. I don't want to be insulted. I don't like to be paid attention to when I'm in the audience. Right. In any way, Most shape people or don't. form. I think one of the interesting things with him was when he started, from what I understand, you know, the insult thing was directed at like people in the audience he knew. Right. And over time, right. people came to see the guy who insults right. people. Or to get insulted. And eventually exactly that. Like you knew if you were going, but, you, but it's because he was, a, that was what he was known for. Because he was famous, yeah. So you wouldn't go there if you were, if you had an apprehension. But if you're like at the, you know, yucks a lot downtown right, right. And, and you're, you're just, just some guy who's meeting. got 20 bucks and wants to go see a show you yeah. don't want to be picked on right yeah. going from the observation stuff to the you know making it more personal you know it always makes me think of somebody like Pryor who you know you listen to that early stuff and he was just straight up ripping off Bill Cosby you know pretty straight to watch you know how he yeah. took that arc over where he started making it personal and then once everybody like once he had mined that territory um, he took it so far then in the, in the other direction. He made it so personal right. that it was not just you relating. It was like you seeing somebody just being right. open like that. Who was it a couple of years ago? I won't mention names. It's a young lady in a, in a show that we were doing who, <laughs> who said, I kind of know who Richard Pryor is, but I don't really know what he did. <laughs> and I remember turning to you as the only comedian in the room and saying, can you help me? Can you help me with this? How do we explain to this child the importance of somebody like that? And even setting aside like all the cultural stuff, just like the art of comedy. Right. Well, and that's the thing too. And this, you know, I, I look at, I always say like, if I have somebody who wants, give me some comedy tips. I'm trying to be a better comedian. First thing I say is who are your favorite comedians? Mm -hmm. And what do all those people have in common? And the thing that they all have in common is they're putting themselves on the stage. Yeah. I'm on, I'm right here. Mm-hmm. This is me. I'm telling you a story about me. Now I've, I've tweaked it a little bit to make it funny. I've shifted things around a little bit to make the story shorter and more efficient. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you about me mm-hmm. on stage. Like Patton Oswalt, who lost his wife a year ago, mm-hmm. is doing material about his wife. Mm-hmm who he lost a year ago and he is not like, it's not all yuck it up. Some of it's just, I'm just going to talk about my wife for a minute, mm-hmm. you know, and that's like super crazy brave to do that. Yeah. But there's a, a point where you go, yeah, I can do the usual stuff or I can step out of, um, what I've been doing. Like I did a lot of safe stuff. Like I did, oh, I was in college and da da da, or I was a fat kid, da da da, or I work out, or I'm getting old. And then one day, when gay marriage was legalized all over the country, a comic asked me, well, when are you and Jim gonna get married? I said, I don't know, I guess at some point. I mean, we've been living together for 26 years. I don't know if we'll necessarily get married. Wow. And he was like, well, why not? You can get married now. I'm like, 
you've been able to get married since they invented the word marriage. When are you going to get married? And then I thought, there must be gay guys who are hesitant to get married like straight guys are. Like, like right. there must be gay guys whose out <laughs> was, we can't get married. We would so get married, baby. We can't get married. I would married. ask you right now if I it was, was We would possible. go down to the courthouse and now there's like no excuse. It's like, oh my God, that that is the the level that the leveling point. That's right. the that's right. the you know, the playing field is level because now, okay, here's what gay guys and straight guys have in common. Some of them have marriage phobia. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a great joke to put on stage. But the problem was I wasn't really out on stage. Like I would mm-hmm. be out at clubs, sure. like gay clubs or gay shows, but I wasn't out in regular mainstream right. shows. And I said, all right, I have to, I have to. You weren't, you weren't billing yourself as the gay comedian. The gay, which <laughs> that's kind of why. Yeah. Because yeah. that's what you become. Yep. Just like you're the black comedian. Right. Or you're the woman comedian. You're the Hispanic comedian. You're the gay comedian. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be the gay comedian. I want to be a comedian who's gay. And I'm not going to lie about it. But right. I wasn't just going to be gay. So I really had to examine it. And I was like, how do I do this without making it? He's the gay comedian. And I literally just, I would like try to segue. Because for a while there was gays in the military. Mm-hmm. And then I could talk about gay marriage. But it would be really very disingenuous if I wasn't out talking about gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Like the gays, those gay people. <laughs> there must be some of those gays who. So finally I said, all right, um, I'm gay. And I did, you know, this thing. You know, we, you know I, th- I, th- I think I was talking about gay marriage. And it was like, which is cool because now I can get married. Because right. I'm gay. And, you know, and I did the whole joke. I said to my boyfriend, you know, he was like, when are we going to get married? And I'm like, well, we'll get married when it's legal. And da, da, da. now it's legal. And I'm like, damn it. I had a thing. You're messing up my thing. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that went over. And people were like, he's like me. I'm like him. We're like us. And the thing I really had to figure out was I can't lead with that. Mm-hmm. Because they don't know me, mm-hmm. you know, which is if you make it a macrocosm is the problem. Like people think they know what a gay person is or they right. know what a white person right. is or they know what a transsexual is or they know what a, you know, a, a Muslim is or whatever group. Mm-hmm. And until you actually know the person and it's just like, you know, I've, I've never been a, a person who's like, I represent all the black people. I am just like all the gay. Like, no, I can only speak for myself. Mm-hmm. And I feel this, 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 this. Um, I do this thing in my show where I talk about, like, I don't think I'm the, I'm doing all the gay stuff I'm supposed to do. Like, I, I don't, you know, I don't go to parades. I mean, I'm as proud as the next guy, but I don't think it should block the street so I can't get to the speedway. I think that's a little unfair. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't own any booty shorts. I don't, uh, every once in a while, I eat at the Chick-fil-A. I know, I know I'm not supposed to. I feel the guilt with every waffle fry. I get it. Why do they make homophobia so crispy good? <laughs> and, that, and, and people cannot help but go, oh. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like, look, not all the gays are the same. Right, right, right. You know, I, I'm not, I mean, there are gay men who like to wear a dress. I don't. Mm-hmm. I like pants and slacks and things. Um, but there's all, there's all walks. There's all facets of all of it. There's all facets of black. Because I wrestled with that for so long being the right type of black. Right, just inside your own life. Yeah. Yeah. And I just said I just I am I am black, but I'm also this and I'm also this and I'm also this. 
Um, and then it was the same thing with the gay. I'm gay, but I'm also this. Like when you first try to start doing anything, mm-hmm. I mean, just even trying to, what, what is being a man like? What is that? You know, do, you have, do I have to be strong? Do I have to work on cars? And you start inside that right. little narrow box just to right. start figuring right. it out. What, yeah. or, or you start with the, the role models you see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I should cuss a lot and maybe drink and perhaps pinch a woman's butt. Is that what the men do? You know, and then you do that and go, that doesn't fit. And so then you have to go through that whole, well, why aren't you doing what we're all doing? We're all men. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing what we're doing, you're not a man. If mm-hmm. you don't hunt something and bring it in the house, right. you're not a man. You know, um, if you don't have 17 kids, what's your deal? Um, and so I struggled with that so much with black that I was like, okay, I'm not going to struggle with that with anything else. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be whatever it is that I am. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of man are you? What kind of gay are you? What kind of black are you? What kind of 53-year-old are you, you know? Um, and just be whatever that is and do whatever feels right and individualize it, you know? Um, and it's just, at this point, I just feel like it's really working to just be, do I really want to do this? No. So I won't. Do I really want to do this? Yeah, I feel pulled to do that. So then I do, you know? Um, and it's freeing also. Because you also feel like you have this little box that you're carrying on stage with you and you open all these other boxes, like you have five or six boxes and you mm-hmm. open the black box because you're black. You open the male box, you open the I'm older box, you open the I went to college box, I was a fat kid box, because these are safe boxes to open. Mm-hmm. And then opening the gay box, you have to be like, at first I was trying to open it like very carefully, mm-hmm. like just, okay, I'm gay, just, that was open. Everybody Okay. And now what I do is so funny. I'll just be like, you know, in the middle of a joke, blah, 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 joke. And I'll be like, oh, and I'm gay. <laughs> I just come right out. And say, I'm gay. You didn't know that, sir. You didn't know that you see a gay man, did you? You had no idea. You, now these seats aren't so great. You're like sitting at, dick, <laughs> you're sitting at dick height. You didn't expect this, did you? No, I know. When you put on your, you know, you know, Southwood Rosigan t-shirt or whatever it happened to be wearing, you know, you didn't know, did you? When you put on your best flip-flops, you didn't know you'd see a gay man, a large gay man this close to you. You ever been this close to a gay man before, sir? <laughs> A lot of people say they haven't, but I, I, I beg to differ. What about those hunting trips? Let's not talk about it. So there are moments when you don't mind making the audience a little uncomfortable. Just a little. I don't. You Just know what? D- and here's the deal, because I figured out how to pull back off of it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can take you to the brink of, wow, he's creeping me out a little bit. I don't know what to feel. And then I bring it back. And I've already set myself up as, one, I'm already funny. Right. So you can trust that. Right. Two, um, I'm, you know me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about all this stuff that makes me look like an idiot. You know, I've talked about the fact that, you know, because I'm 53, I have to pee every 12 minutes. You know, it's like, me too. We all do. Me too. You know, so when I get to something that that is potentially divisive mm-hmm. and I put it in the perspective of I'm not telling you I'm gay just so I can be mad at you and, and say shame on you. I'm telling you I'm gay because I feel a lot of the same stuff you do. For example, mm-hmm. why you guys don't want to get mm-hmm. married, neither do I. Also, I'm not doing all the gay stuff I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Also, I've been in a relationship for a very long time, you know, and, and just kind of to say, I'm that gay. Mm-hmm. And here comes another gay and he's uh, wearing a feather boa. And um, and that might be OK, too. That's all right. You know, and here as long it as it's coordinated with them. As long as it's accent, a thing, it doesn't clash with the yeah. brick wall. You know, one thing is that one of the things I didn't really start processing probably until a few years ago, because I'm slow, mm-hmm. is performers, you know, we're both driven by a certain kind of there's a vulnerability in there that you count yeah. on to be the, the heart of what you do in the first place yeah. 
I think it's the thing that cracks you open yeah. to wanting to do that. Um, I have tended to lose sight over the years, though, that then there's the vulnerability that you that you meet doing it, where that it's really kind of required right. to doing it. You know, not just getting up on the stage. Oh, that's so vulnerable. No, right. It's what you do once you're there. Yeah, yeah. And it never really dawned on me until recent years the what comedians do. And it, being so incredibly vulnerable, you know, precisely because of this, you know, you are up there by yourself. Right. Everybody expects you, one, to be to bring the funny. Right. You got to do that bare part of it. But that ability to sort of go, and not to make it completely cheesy and ruin it, but, you know, it's you're up there kind of introducing everybody to their shared humanity. Right. It may be right. if you're one kind of comedian over dick jokes. Right. Or if you're another kind of comedian, you know, what I don't know, um, but that's the most fundamental part of it. You know, like right. you guys d- doing uh, doing comedy. Do you prefer to be called a comedian or stand up? Any of them, comedian, comic, okay. stand up. Funny man. <laughs> uh, just don't say you can use this in your skit. We don't like that. No, no. You can use this in your skit. <laughs> but you guys are you know continuing that. Like we don't. No matter how, how everybody loves the idea of like poetry being alive and all that kind of right. stuff. Uh, you know, we're not a big poetry country anymore. We don't sit around the campfire listening to right. tales of the ancient bard or anything like that. But like stand up is one of the few places where we go and watch a person telling stories. Exactly. Essentially. Exactly. And it's, it's your story. Mm-hmm. Um, at least your perspective on a story, but it's, it's your story. And it's funny because as a comedian, I think as any performer, frankly, because I also find this in acting, you probably find it in music. There's an expectation from the audience that you are going to be in control of mm-hmm. what's happening. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side, if you're too far in the control of what's happening, then you miss those moments where you can be like, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, what if I say this thing? Or what if I play this character like this tonight? Mm-hmm. You know, living, dancing on the edge of that knife every time you get on stage yeah like i did a i do cruise ships and there'll be two three hundred people in a room and then like a couple weeks ago i did a show in a a theater about that size that Mm -hmm. had 12 people in it Mm. and right exactly like oh great and you do that because you're human you're like oh this is great yeah but on the same token you also think all right so this is not going to be like that other show Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see what I can do with this. Mm-hmm. All right, can we pause? Mm-hmm. All right. We were talking about uh, the "there's a dog in the kitchen" signs. There's the I, I would so I went into the kitchen, and there are. That's here, here at the office, by the way. So. Yeah, evidently, um, it's a very dog-friendly space, which is nice. I like that. And so I feel like somebody was sitting around one day, and they said, "I want to bring my dog to work, but I have clients in the building." <laughs> And so they said, well, just put him in the kitchen. Like, well, how do I know the dog's in the kitchen? It's like, well, just make a sign that says, you know, Tango's in the kitchen. And I was just walking by and I saw like, Tango's in the kitchen. Careful, Parker's in the kitchen. Romeo's in the kitchen. (laughs) First of all, these names, let's start with that. But even what's even more funny is that for, you know, the people in the building, that's very normal. That's what we do. We come up with a solution. That's fine. That's what we do. And then for somebody who's never seen it before, that's like, what t- 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 What a funny thing that there are these signs <laughs> to warn you. And what's even funnier is that I figured out, well, it must be a dog. 
because like what else would you be trapping in the kitchen <laughs> be careful tanger my four-year-old son is in the kitchen <laughs> but what's interesting about that and it sort of goes back to what we were talking about with comedy and one of the things i tell people is that we have lived our lives inside ourselves mm-hmm. so there are things for us that have been normalized mm-hmm. because we have lived that life and then what's interesting is that if you know, because I'll talk to comedians and they'll say, well, tell me something about your life. Like, well, it's not very exciting. Well, tell me. And then they'll tell me some weird thing. And I'm going, why is that not on stage? Like, I don't know. That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. You have to tell everyone about that because people want a peek inside. That's why reality shows are so popular, Mm -hmm. even though they aren't reality. Mm -hmm. Because people want to be like, oh, what's it like to, you know, live in a house with you know, seven other people, or what's it like to, you know, have a restaurant that's going under? Or, mm-hmm. You know, what's it like to, you know, date fourteen guys at the same time? <laughs> and we, and we, it's like it's kind of this. We're peeking behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we're finding out something we didn't know, and it's like, and that helps to sort of normalize all of us because mm-hmm. we all have a curtain to peek behind. I think sometimes we peek behind the curtain that we're peeking behind, like with a reality show. Mm-hmm. Like you say, what would it be like if so-and-so and so-and-so? And And then you have cameras everywhere. You try to catch these candid moments, which aren't. And then you have to go behind that camera later and go, all right, so all of this is staged. But I felt like this with, you know, like Mm -hmm. with, 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 what's his name? Andy Cohen. Oh, right, Like after the the show, about the show, about the people in the show. (laughs) Um, And then you just go to a point like, do, do we ever really get behind the curtain for anybody? Mm-hmm. You know, do we ever really find out what's back there? And then we do when people don't know. Like, if the clowns had seen you, right. they would have clowned it up. Hey, kid. Uh, right. You know, squeeze their nose and make it honk or whatever. And you wouldn't have gotten to see mm-hmm. what happens. It's kind of like when we were kids and we thought the teacher lived at the school. Yes. Like, yeah. she, she's always here. She must have some sort of room that she... We just never thought about the fact that she had a place. Mm-hmm. And I had a teacher, fifth grade teacher, Miss Day Felici. And she was zany. Um, she would wear these really crazy pantsuits because it was the 70s and all that. And one on Friday, you could never do this now, but on Fridays, she would pick three kids mm-hmm. to go to her house and have beanie weenies. <laughs> And play games for a couple of hours. And then she would drive us all home in her yellow VW Beetle. Wow. And every kid wanted to be, and she did it alphabetically. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, the next three kids are this kid, this kid, you know, and she did it like maybe once a month. I don't think she did it every week. She did like once a month or something. Um, And you'd go over to her house and you saw her apartment. Mm -hmm. You'd hang out in her apartment. I mean, obviously you had to get permission slips from the parents, but you'd hang out in her apartment and You'd make hot dogs and, mm-hmm. and, you know, pork and beans and you play games and um, and then she would, you know, you do that for a couple of hours and then she'd take you home. Mm-hmm. And I, and that was the first time I thought, wow, she lives, she has a life somewhere else. Mm-hmm. She doesn't live at the school. Right. You know, she has an apartment, you know, she has an actual bathroom and no teachers went to the bathroom. It's amazing. <laughs> um, breaking down walls. Breaking down the walls yeah. with Miss Day Felicia. I, I cannot help, and, and you talking about all these things, I can't help but go to, I wouldn't even say the political state, the the, the cultural right. state of things right now. Right. And it's really interesting because on the one hand, people talk, you know, 
obsessively about the bubbles we find ourselves all in. It's constantly self-reinforcing and all that sort of stuff. You know, and that's sort of taking those peaks behind the curtains to see how other people live. Mm -hmm. But there's a mirror there instead. And we're just kind of constantly looking at ourselves. Mm -hmm. But there still seems to be that that hunger to want to know about how other people live. Right. It's one of those things where I feel like, I mean, you know, screw the politicians and their usual shortcomings. The the cultural stuff too often is kind of failing right. in, in ways to just sort of open those curtains and not, you know, I keep coming back to, or I keep thinking about what you were saying in terms of how you present these other aspects of yourself up there right. and you couch it, you know, you like, first off, you're here for a comedy show. Let me make sure you feel good that this is a comedy show. Right. And then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. In right. There, right. You know, um, sort of understanding that level of responsibility seems to be in short supply in the sense that like it's getting bad. And I respect the, the people who are doing the attack work, you know, the, the Michelle Wolf, whatever, you know, yeah, sometimes you need to do that, but then there need to be the other but, folks okay, who are going. So Michelle Wolf, here's what's up with that. Michelle Wolf has been doing that comedy mm-hmm. for oh, her yeah. whole comedic life. Right. There is no one who vetted Michelle Wolf that didn't know she was going to do that. Right. No one. What this does, it creates a buzz around the correspondence dinner. Sure. Because otherwise, who would care? I didn't even know there was a correspondence dinner until mm-hmm. like four years ago. And there's been one for decades. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. And what they, the way they need to say, hey, this is a thing, is to make somebody a Shake lightning rod. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, even liberals are, oh, my God, I can't believe she. What? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Really, guys? Um, this was very interesting. I was um, I was hosting a, a showcase for Arts Reach, which is this really great organization mm-hmm. that brings arts to community centers. And it was showcasing a bunch of kids who had had like a dance instructor or a violin instructor mm-hmm. or a, a singing instructor or what have you come to their school and they had these various or, or a community center and they had these various groups performing. And at some point I was like, you can, you know, I always say, you can be on this stage, you, you write you, you can be on this stage next year. All you have to do is go to community center. It doesn't matter where you're from. You can be from Beachmont, and then they would yell. You can be from Park Hill, and then they would yell. You can be from, Pro- well, ain't no prospect people. There's a, and, I, and they did it like in the clenched teeth, kind of thirsting out. There's no prospect people. <laughs> right? And so I get feedback from Julia Youngblood, who is the head of, of Arts Reach. Mm-hmm that there were some prospect people there and they were fundraisers oh. and there were a couple of also a couple of <laughs> we'll just say it white people who work for the center who were like well the fundraisers were outraged by Keith's joke and I went how how microscopic are we going to get with this mm-hmm. like it was mm-hmm. it was literally a four second joke right in a two hour show and they didn't come back and go, these kids were phenomenal. It's amazing. How can I help? I'm so glad I raised money. He's mm-hmm. like, well, he made fun of us. I made fun of the rich white people. Right. And they're like super sensitive. And I can see that. I, I, I don't necessarily see going out and saying, shame on you. But here's what the thing is. Two things. One, I can see that because like there's a, suddenly a lot of white privilege guilt happening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not walking around going, shame on you for being a white man. Um, 
but I need to say that to you right now, yep. Paul. Shame Thank on you. you being a white man. Thank you. Um, Wait, I'm white? Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to bring it to you like this on your podcast or whatever, but, and if I don't say it, then I, you know, I lose my black people card. Um, but I'm not doing that with people. Like mm-hmm. white people know they're white. You just need to acknowledge that. Yes, I have, just like as a male, I have advantages that other people don't. Right. As a person who went to college, I have advantages you don't. There are, there are going to be doors that open to me that don't necessarily open to you. And that just needs and to it, be part of the conversation. Yeah, and it's not that I want to take your door. Mm. Like, I want a door also. That's all it is. Right. And there's this fear like, well, if you get a door, I don't have a door. It's like, there is a lot of doors. <laughs> so many doors. And then the other half of it is there's such a, they're like, like ready to fight and ready to duke it out because they're, I don't know if they're, I'm, I'm doing the same thing that they accuse other people of doing. But um, there's this idea that I'm trying to come down on you mm-hmm. when really the opposite is true. I'm sort of, again, as a comedian, I tell the truth with humor. Mm-hmm. And that is a true statement. Now, if you want to be overly sensitive about the fact that you live in a house um, where there are five digits on your address, mm-hmm. um, you can. But it doesn't make it any less true. And it doesn't make you any less rich. Right. You know, it doesn't make you any less advantaged, mm-hmm. whether or not I tell this joke. And I think the fact that somebody acknowledges that there is privilege where you live and you being like, what? How dare you? <laughs> Did I lie? Was there a lie in the joke mm-hmm. or was it just the fact that I brought it up? What exactly offends you about the joke? Right. I, would, I would really be curious to talk to someone and go, why exactly were you offended by the joke? You know, what, was it that I, were you embarrassed to be in a group of a lot of black people and I'm making fun of you as a rich white person? Well, welcome to my world. <laughs> welcome to hundreds of years of mm-hmm. me living in America. Mm-hmm. You know, and so maybe you can take this and rather than say, how dare you? You can go, thank you. I get it now. Right. You know, rather than just writing a check blindly and going, give it to whomever. Right. Right. Going, oh, I'm giving this to you because now I have the empathy to see what's really going on. It's not just, you don't have as much as me, it's that you don't have as much as me because of whatever is set up in society. Right. And I'm gonna try to use this to kind of break down some of that in society. Thank that's you. It, that's it, so. <laughs> <laughs> this may turn into my first two-parter. Is it very long? Uh, I mean, not too long. Oh, okay. I don't want, you know. No, I could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, when you when you ask me, can you talk about yourself? I'm like, I'll try. Yeah. Wrenching it out of you. Just okay. And then here's another 45 minutes. Dropping these nuggets. I, so these days, besides being the funny man that you are. Mm-hmm. Kidding. Comedian. Um, funny man is okay. In I, any connotation. I, I don't want to limit you, though, to just being funny. Because I've seen also some of your, you know what? Some I, of your dramatic work. There would have <laughs> been a time where I would have felt like, but I'm more than that. But if you only know me as funny man, mm-hmm. that's great. Because you know. You know. I know deep in me, yeah. and I'm more. So um, these days, comedian. So, so these days, I'm, educator. I, I'm teaching. I'm trying to act. Um, I'm also a couple of interesting new ventures are happening. Um, I'm 
venturing into workshops of varying degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine, another comedian actually, Jeff Davis, who works for Republic Bank, was like, we just had this guy come in and, and uh, talk about diversity and inclusion, and he was a, a white guy. And so we thought, this is kind of disingenuous. <laughs> do you do anything like that? And I said, well, uh, no. I mean, I talk a lot about a lot of stuff, but I hadn't really thought about doing that. And, they, and he said, I think you could with all the stuff you do. Mm-hmm. You could be a guy who talks about that just from life experience and then mm-hmm. you know, do some research and put together some pretty pictures. And, mm-hmm. and as I went through and I thought about, and I really had to put it together a CV, um, that's a curriculum vitae for the listeners, um, I realized that from the stuff I'd done, I have done a lot of stuff. I've been in a lot of environments just mm-hmm. with teaching or just with, with comedy or just with um, acting um, that, you know, or just regular jobs, mm-hmm. you know, like I was at the science center for, for several years and basically I would just like, all right, we need you, we're on this floor and we need you to invent a bunch of stuff to do on this floor. <laughs> Right. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to write this, you know, I'm going to write this demonstration or I'm going to, you know, do this presentation for the board or we're going to come up with these ideas for the teacher institute. That's two weeks long. and We have to give teachers stuff to do when they go back to the classroom that is based on their curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. And so those skills are really good in that. I didn't know one that I was developing them and two that they can transfer into other stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So. What I've been doing is I've been putting together, like somebody will say, we want you to come in and talk to us about something, something, because you're funny. So come in and talk to us. We want you to put together a <laughs> workshop for the YMCA camp counselor leaders about belonging. And so I just, from, from whole cloth, I just went, okay, we're going to mm-hmm. do this exercise, and this is, oh, this will be good, da, 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 da. And then, boom, now I have a workshop on belonging, um, you know, or a workshop on, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like, I have, like, four or five workshops. Of stuff, and so what I've been doing, I've been sort of trying to shop them around. And the other thing I've done is that I've I've uh, worked with people on their inf- in, uh, on motivational speeches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody will give an hour speech, and they go, "Oh, this is so. What can I do?" And I'm like, "Put some humor in this." And I'm like, "Okay, here's what we can do." Come in and punch it up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, punch it up, or like listen to them, help them shape it, or what have right. you. Right. And in doing that, I realized I could do what you're doing. I could talk to somebody for an hour about th- this, what this is. And they give you all of that money mm-hmm. every time for an hour. And then you're done. Really? So I was like, I have to do that. So now I, I'm started to do that. I'm starting to do workshops and, and, uh, fundraising, not fundraisers, icebreakers, mm-hmm. um, for corporate people. Hmm. So, yeah. If I ever, if I happen to predecease my beloved, which I've told her I'm not planning on doing, but if I do, Will you help her with the uh, with the funeral? Right. I want in twenty sixteen, I, I wrote, want jokes. In twenty sixteen, I wrote three of them. Are you serious? Yeah, it was quite a year. Twenty sixteen. Wow. My, my mother died of cancer. My brother oh. died of cancer. My, oh. nephew, my nephew got shot. And that uncle, I, uh, who was the grandpa, who was like a horrible dad and mm-hmm. a horrible uncle, and was magical grandpa. Mm-hmm. I I didn't write anything for that one. His son did that one. Mm-hmm. But that was those four people within a four month period, we're all gone. Wow. And I was like, all right, this is, uh, I'm getting pretty good at this. Maybe I should run myself out as usually. <laughs> but it was like stuff like at my nephew's funeral, the preacher, cause my nephew never went to, 
church. Mm-hmm. His mother went to this church, and so she wanted him bear, you know, the mm-hmm. funeral at this church. And so this preacher who didn't know him at all called him Ronnie. His name's Christopher. <laughs> Not even remotely the same. And I looked, I just went, I looked at my nephew and went, who is Ronnie? He's like, shut up. I did. I mean, I would, at the funeral, mm-hmm. I was that guy in mm-hmm. the corner making people laugh. Like I was texting my cousin, who's like one of the funniest people I know. <laughs> I was texting my cousin. Like, like my, my, my cousin, her brother, another cousin, was talking about their dad and how he taught him all of this stuff and whatever. And he did a pretty good job at dancing around all of this stuff. He taught us the value of a dollar and how mm-hmm. to build things. And he was saying all this stuff. And um, I texted my, my other cousin, like, who is he talking about? Am I at the right funeral <laughs> during the funeral? Right. You need that. You do. I, my sister and I, when we talk about both my mom's funeral and my dad's funeral, you know, we don't talk, talk about the beautiful flowers. No, or, or the people who came. and Just the moments where we were desperately fighting to not start laughing out loud. Oh, yeah. No, I, one of the things that happened at my mother's funeral was like right after she died, one of the deacons of the church, because she had left the church because they fired a preacher because they wanted somebody else to be put mm-hmm. in the preacher because this preacher wasn't, I don't know, grafty enough, I guess. <laughs> and <laughs> we need somebody graftier. Um, so they fired. Now the man, here's on top of it, the man had a brain tumor, literally a brain tumor that he had operated on, survived, and he had been gone so long. They thought, well, the bylaws say the preacher has to be in the church X amount. And so he's, he came back like right before and preached and quit. <laughs> and so all of these people f- either left the church or followed him to wherever he went. Mm-hmm. And so my mother went to that church like most of my life. Um, so that's where she wanted to be buried. And she wanted him to preach the sermon. So mm-hmm. he came back and preached the sermon. And um, one of the deacons, one of the grafty deacons came to our house to console us and um, was like, did your mother make any provisions for the church? Like, what do you mean? Like, I mean, did she have like anything in her will or a trust? I'm like, no, she gave you guys 10% of everything she had her entire <laughs> life. We found checks no matter what, like we didn't have lights, mm-hmm. but she tied mm-hmm. every, every Sunday. And so I got on the stand and my mother loved to play bingo. She was crazy about bingo. She loved scratch offs. So I bought two scratch offs just that day. And I said, my mother loved bingo. She loved scratch off. She was a very fun person. And I scraped them off on the, at the podium. Mm-hmm. And I said, we won two bucks, mom. <laughs> and then I said, don't worry, Deacon, you'll get it. We'll give it to you. It'll go to the church. And my aunt said, you shouldn't have said that. And I didn't realize what I had done. Right. right. Like I was just making jokes. And yeah. I realized like, again, like that truth leaks out, you know, it goes leap. But yeah, I mean, it was like that. Like at one point, the preacher, the after at the burial site, because the preacher who who preached the eulogy left, and so at the actual graveyard or whatever, there was another preacher, and he was trying to be very pretentious because this was his moment, and he mm-hmm. said, "And Hattie McGill will go up into heaven. She will go through that great porthole." And I went, "Did he say porthole?" <laughs> That seems really unfair because she was a large woman. It would be hard for her 
to get through a portal. She has been a servant of Christ her whole life, and now she's got to go through a portal. Squeeze through a portal. Mm, mm, mm. That's not fair. I think it's appropriate that lightning is apparently I was gonna st- say, striking outside. It might actually hit us. <laughs> <laughs> so before we tempt fate too much more, I, I really could go on and on. We didn't touch on, on so many of the things you do. Um, so I really might drag you back in here sometime. No, that'd be fun. At this point. I, I will say next time, maybe a little more honesty. Um, I'm sorry. I, I, I hide things. I keep things. Bring it forth. Close to the chest and just keep it inside. But Until I explode. Thank you. Thank for you. For coming in and trying this thing. No, it's so great. I hope it's successful because I think it'd be really terrific. Because this is how they start. Like I have so many friends who start, you know, podcasts and then they grow and then boom, all of a sudden you're Mark Maron. Uh, would from what, what's the old uh, from, from your, your mouth, mouth to, to God, somebody's ears yeah. whoever you believe in as a as a Texas comedian songwriter from years ago who used to always say you know may be blessed by the God of your own choosing <laughs> on that note there was that reminds me of something <laughs> there was this black woman she was an actress and she was probably one of the first plays I ever did like mm-hmm. like it was at college or something and I was like guy number three and Something happened. And she said, "God damn it!" And the, uh, there was a woman there who said, "You shouldn't talk like that." And she said, "Oh, I'm not damning your God." <laughs> and I thought that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well played. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Paul. Mm-hmm.